0: And register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at EveryWoman'sMarathon.com. Hey, it's the Long Farm Podcast. We're back. I'm Aaron Lammer from Long Farm. I'm here with Max Linsky. I'm here with Evan Ratlett from The Atavist. Very excited about our guest this week. Uh, Just taped it Uh, Mike Sager uh max got to talk to him tell me about it max oh man that guy's that guy just rules that guy rules
1: we were i don't know how this is we we're we we're taping this intro before it's been edited i think we just talked for like two hours i'm sure it's going to be a lot shorter than that but he he's uh that guy's awesome and he, he I'll, I, uh spoiler he has thought a lot about the craft of long-form journalism
0: my I, mike Sager is the uh, the rare person i would call it. he was a veteran he's a veteran of the craft
2: He's also, I think we should say, Mike Sager of the Sager Group. Yes, check it out. The Sager
0: Group. I'll see.
2: Which is his personal defense contractor. <laughs>
0: um, he's been he's been doing this for a long time, uh, definitely since the 80s at least. He went to law school for three weeks in D.C. and then quit and got a job as a copy boy
1: at the Washington Post in like 1980. Uh, and he's great. He's great. He's also the author of... Uh, Perhaps my favorite story ever, which is the man who never was, which is this profile of
0: Todd Marovitch. And also, uh, if you're ever if you're interested in the uh, story sort of behind uh, Boogie Nights, uh, his story, the the devil and John Holmes, is really one of the more incredible uh, relics of the early porn era. Um, but Aaron, f- if you were, if you were interested in say like um, Boogie Nights, but also sending an e newsletter. What I might you? check out these guys, Tiny Letter, who coincidentally sponsored this podcast this week. com. Uh, Tinyletter tinyletter.com? A, tinyletter.com. They're a simple um, yet deeply powerful way to send an email newsletter uh, from the good people at MailChimp. And we thank them for continuing to support uh, what we do every week here. Uh, so thank you, Tiny Letter. And uh, thank you, Max, for talking to Mike Sager. Yeah, thanks, Mike.
1: Some seriously low worlds, low American worlds. You've you've written about some, like, deeply tragic, fucked up stuff. I mean, how does being an outsider help you do that?
2: Well, it's like if you're, you know, I feel like with reporters, maybe I can approach it like this. I think, like, most journalists are really super smart. There probably could have been something else. Like, I went to law school. I could be making a mill a year or whatever now. You know, every single reporter is probably like that. You know, we all could have been doing something else. And oftentimes I just see when people go into a situation, though, they take with them their I'm the smartest kid in the class attitude because it's defensiveness. It's like that's how they greet the world. That's what they've always been used to doing. Um, For some reason, when you're not part of a group, you don't have all this ethnocentric, Jingoism to (laughs) fall back on, you know what I mean? It's like when you're part of a group, then you can't fit into another group. It's like one of the things I really teach, and I believe in so strongly is something Roseanne, the comedian, said to me. She said one time, apropos of nothing, all hate is fear, all hate is just fear, all fear is insecurity, and I think that that's the operating set of the entire world in all of its groups. You know, every group has its own operating set. And if you believe in this thing, then other people can't be right, like religions, especially. Because they're like talking about the end, what, what's going to happen in an eternity. So it's really, they're playing for keeps. <laughs> and so, of course, they hate you if you're different. Right. But I was instilled with this thing by my parents who loved me. They, you know, fuck me up plenty, but they love the shit out of me. So I have some way where I can go with people and they're different and I don't feel bad about myself. I mean, I've had like 13 year old pit bull fighting kids like shame me horribly for my shoes and my clothes and what, you know, and throw pebbles at my head. And it doesn't bother me. It's like because I think because it's like when I'm a reporter, it's I'm not me. I'm, like, just there to get the job done and and learn stuff. And I don't take it personally. And plus, I know I'm going to get the last word. And plus, I know I'm not getting anything without the people. It's like, again, being a good human being, because if if you don't have this source, you don't have the story. And the more comfortable they are with you, the more you're going to get. You just want them to be normal and forget who you are and forget that you're there. Sit down, shut up, and let the people be themselves before you're all worried and judging. You know, just, I don't judge them. I just don't care. It's like when I told you before we were talking before uh, the broadcast here about, (laughs) I wrote about a pimp a long time ago. My very first time I went on a TV show was Maury Povich's show in Washington, D.C. I was like his last minute substitute. And he, I come out there and I was surprised he'd read the piece. He said, you really like this guy, didn't you? I mean, he's a pimp. And he was a pimp. And there were a lot of things that were illegal that he was doing and immoral, but... I call it a constellation of reality, like everyone has their own constellation of reality. Their stars fit together in a certain worldview. They believe in an afterlife. They believe in getting virgins when you go. They believe in, you know, keeping kosher. They believe in any zillions of things that people believe in and that's their thing. And it's like, they don't believe what you believe and it's okay as long as they don't fuck with me. You know, and I just rather like, no, I just want to understand And so I put myself, and so I think that's the bigger question that we're talking about. That's what's hard for a journalist is to just put your fears and your insecurities aside and just like be a friend to the gangbanger who's just a person, just like everyone else. Every single fucking person is a person. I don't care if you're Bill Clinton or Reagan or anyone. I've always found a communality of humanity with everyone. You know, some people don't want to give it to you. You know, you do celebrity interviews, they don't want you to know their life. I, I can sit there for a million years for some celebrities and they are not, if they're not going to, you know, and that's fine. But that's really not what I trade in. I trade in real people because I want to know about them.
1: You came about as close to a, what felt like an authentic portrayal of Kobe Bryant as I've ever read. How much time did you get in that situation? Because it did feel like the whole point of that story was, I might get a glimpse here, like you like we maybe will get a glimpse of what this guy no. is really like,
2: and then I end up getting to spend some time because I always earn my way in it 's like you know, like with the high school kid when I wrote about him, the entire seven thousand word story is about one afternoon, but I spent like four months there, you know, so that 's what you don 't see in the stories is the process, like the kobe story i don 't know there's a couple moments in there, but oftentimes you know in the Condit story we talked about, I had to follow myself and then I got to follow behind the car then finally they l- let me in the car and then once in the car he gave me that great line in the beginning which is this sort of the story of all stories like why are they following you around Gary why are these you know everywhere he went and everybody who's in a news event it's the same thing why are, what are the press expecting why are they going there you know and Gary Condon says they just want me to say that I fucked her. <laughs> you know, and it's it's like that's the moment you're looking for, that moment of truth which only comes after time, after time, after time, spending time, being small, making the person realize that you're not there to cop what everybody just takes off the top. People want to just take the meaning off the top, the common understanding. It's like if you really think about it, so much of life is just common understanding, and everybody has a like a one-word association with everything. Like when I first, my first our second story for Esquire back in the old regime was about Al Sharpton. And it was during the Tawana Brawley issue when he was big and fat and everybody hated him. And I fucking loved Al Sharpton. I thought he was the smartest, one of the smartest men I'd ever met. And he was so good to me and nice. He was a good human being. Uh, I liked him and I wrote that. And he became that eventually. He became a guy who ran for fucking president. Right. And
1: Well, that's, I mean, you're saying the thing, you know, you, you, uh, your subjects are necessary for your story, and you also get the last word. But I wonder whether, I mean, if you're a good human being, you're a good human being, you're a good human being, the story comes out, there's something in there that people don't like uh, that isn't their interpretation of their own lives, that isn't their, the way they view their own story. How, how, does that, how does that happen, right? Where does that transaction Well, you know end? what?
2: It rarely does happen. The last amount of time is spent for asking the tough questions. But by the time you spend time asking their whole life story, then the second third is just hang out with them and not ask questions or ask questions about what's happening around you. Um, By the time you get to the last question, you know, to Todd Marinovich, you know, do you think you did drugs to take yourself out of competition? You know, to the ugly guy, you know, you're asking him, like, what's, you know, what do you really think? You always want to find out what the nut is. And so I've gone through this long ordeal with them and become close with them and talk to them. And, you know, the greatest gift you can give people is listening to what they have to say. You know, and I think that to a certain degree, there's a ministry of listening, um, which is what I trade on, um, that I give a person a good listening and I just nod my head, and I say, cool, you know, well, yeah, I like to talk about the time when I did this long crime story about these two kids who killed nine Buddhist monks in, uh, in Phoenix, outside of Phoenix, and I covered it first for Rolling Stone and then for GQ, so I actually got to do the whole thing, and then I got one of the kids in jail afterwards who copped a plea, and then I got to interview him. So I got the whole, and I took him starting from birth, and then finally, like, two hours later, we got to, and then we shot him. And like I remember one time watching TV and Diane Sawyer was interviewing some hookers. And she's like, she like screwed up her face and said, you do that for money? <laughs> and she, the way she said it to the hooker was so judgmental. Now, I understand it's TV and so she's not just playing to the interview. But I'm not, so when the guy said, and then we shot them, I said the same thing to him that I say to my kid since he's two. Cool, what was that like? And then he tells me, the gurgling sound, the brains, the whole, we put the gun, you know, and that's really going back to the Washington Post when I had the night police editor who'd send me back three, what hand was the gun in? What side of the car did he walk around? This idea of learning how to report something and making a visual picture in your head. It's kind of like, that's what I do when I write and I report. I try to assemble this film or snapshot in my head with all the pieces that I've had to report, um, which is why, you know, trade secret, when I'm reporting, I go back to the person a zillion times. I'm asking the person all while, the, while I'm writing, I'm emailing, I'm texting, I'm calling, you know, because I can't ask every single qu- All those details that I couldn't have gotten every single one, you know, in reporting, you just can't ask everything. Right. But what you can seek to do in reporting is, you know, get those, like, reality um, show film of a person's life and then you go through it I do a long process of transcribing all the tape or and at, I sometimes get help or reading all the transcriptions where I and I like see the scenes and I I start seeing a story you know just as a filmmaker might although it's found art I don't make it up it's like I, I what I call the trash compactor theory of journalism where you spend all this time with the people and then you compact it down. You know, and you find the essence of what these few scenes, how they're symbolic, you know, or metaphorical or whatever um, for the person's life. So that's how it ends up being told.
1: Is part of that process giving people a heads up about what's coming out? I mean, do you walk people through the rougher
2: points of a story, let them know it's coming? You know, it's sort of like the rougher points of a story become normalized through the ministry of talking, and through my understanding, like when I wrote about the 600-pound man, you know, he's 6'2", 600 pounds, ended up getting up to 800 pounds before he died. And, but it's like I spent like two and a half weeks with the guy, and I really wanted to know how he wiped himself. <laughs> I just, you know, he, and we had become very intimate. We spent all these meals together, all this time, and he taught me about how, like, he could go to a movie theater because his fat would flow around the, the seat. Uh, you know the armrests, the armrests, and but he couldn't eat in a restaurant with a table because it wouldn't go. But you know, it's like all this interesting stuff. And I and and this guy, like he lived in this house that was just a, a nightmare, I guess, with all these cats, and he wouldn't even let me in his house. Um, but I, I had to ask him, you know, Charlie, um, how do you uh, how do you wipe yourself? And um, he told me, and you know, he said he had a series of pump bottles and. He had made up his own bidet. He was a very handy guy. And um, so when I wrote about it and I wrote about him, um, I'd ask him every size, every everything. And then, you know, I think what happens to me is I have a capacity to love people. For who they are, for the time spent, you know, I fall in love and I care about them, but I'm also like a cynical asshole in a way, and I just see stuff, but I care about how they feel. So, I mean, in the past, in some cases, I've actually let people read stuff ahead of time. The pimp was the first notable example because he knew <laughs> where I lived, you know, and I let him read the story. Um, another good example is the Marine guy, the first colonel I wrote about, where I was taping stuff and I didn't even know what they were talking about. The jargon was so thick. And then so I gave him the story at the end because I didn't want to get stuff wrong, right. you know, because I'm using stuff in context and I got everything right. Except there was this one thing I'd ask his wife, I'd interviewed his wife, and his wife told me about it. he was on the boat in Mogadishu, and he sounded scared when he called home. And this guy was about to go kick the door down in Afghanistan in 2001. Well, I guess it was January of 2002. And he was the first one off the boat. And so he's, and it's about to be published. It was like November issue of 2001 after the 9-11. And he's like, listen, I don't want my men to know I was ever scared. Will you please take that out? Now, was that like a kind of a good detail? Yeah, but did it really matter? And it was like you know it was nine eleven. Did it really ruin the story? No, you know I think it's like it's just a magazine story. Part of
1: what I'm interested in is how you how you're choosing these stories and what I mean. You've written about drugs and then crime and porn and. I'm, I'm picking up on these these themes with your own reporting and the way that you approach stories. But what did, what about the themes of the actual stories? Well,
2: there's been like maybe four or five stories in 30 years that I suggested. Really? Yeah. Oh, I, didn't really I know mean, that. I tell a lot of writers you hand in a thousand story ideas and then they assign you something, <laughs> and that's exactly what happened with this run. Like I wrote one piece for Rolling Stone, and then I went back to DC and did stuff. And then I was trying to get back to Rolling Stone and doing everything I could in the era before computers. And one thing I did was send my Rolling Stone editor, Bob Love, who remains a dear friend, um, a subscription to this magazine, Regardies from Washington, because I had a, a 3,000 word reported column every month. And I was trying to do like um, you know, some of the great journalists in the past did with columns, but long reported. So long story short, Bob Love, after reams of ideas, reams of vi- visiting them, oh, we'll come up with something, going up to you New know, York, spending the money, trying to get a job, nothing. You know, one day opens Regardies, sees my story about a pimp. The same day, there's a story in the Wall Street Journal about these kids in North Philly fighting pit bulls and then hanging the losers in abandoned buildings by wire till their death. And he's like, Sager can do the ghetto. And that's it. He calls me up. And, you know, so many stories... At least through my time pre Esquire, were off the front page of the New York Times. Mm-hmm. You know, just do this, do this, do this. You know, oh, I just read this story. Do this. Um, the Marinovich story, um, which was a great success of mine. Um, well, which, let's, hold
1: on. We're going to talk about both these stories, but uh, I, I need to ask a little bit about Marinovich. The uh, little-known fact: I before a year before we started long form. I started some like Tumblr in the middle of the night that was called Longform Lives, I think. And, uh, but it was because of that story. I read that that's, fucking Marinovich story. Cool, man. And I just like. Uh, you have
2: to read the 30,000 word version.
1: I, I hear there is a 30,000 word, word version. There is. In
2: my new <laughs> yeah, there you go. collection called The Someone You're Not, available on ebooks, soon to be on demand.
1: Available You're Not. It'll be in the show notes. A link to the book, Good. but this story, just for anyone who's listening, is about uh, Todd Marinovich, uh, who was sort of engineered from birth to be the greatest quarterback of all time. Uh, actually, had a uh, sort of fraught but incredible college football career. USC, USC was drafted. Raiders. Went to the Raiders basically his best NFL moment was the rookie party he threw for the Raiders. Um, and then, uh, but the entire time had drug problems, which got more intense and more intense as he went further into football. Um, okay. You can keep going now, but I just want to make that's sure that's good. Know well, that. I
2: mean, basically this is a story of, you know, as a journalist, oftentimes we just have to strike out on our own and, And, you know, I say to people, at least we're not like a store owner that has to rent a storefront and get stock and paint the place. And, you know, you just invest your time in doing something. The story was about how Todd hated his father for fucking him up. That was the general story. But that wasn't the story. And that's not what Todd thought. Todd hated himself and didn't want to play and sort of took himself out by drugging himself up, which is like famous actresses singers everybody it's like if you're fucked up you can't perform and then you like lose your anxiety if not you have other problems but at least you don't have the performance anxiety right you know what i mean or you don't want to do it or whatever so that's what was like probably i mean first of all yeah i mean i've been magazines have put my stories up for nomination like 30 some times for the national magazine award i've been in the finals twice and this was the one i won so that was really sweet even though I didn't get my book contract, I got this thing that means a lot to us people who write stories. And you know, the other thing is, is um, that the truth came out. I just hate the popular truth. And it time. wasn't the clean truth. I mean,
1: it, fe- it felt to me like it, it was, a, and it was a truth that you couldn't arrive at without having uh, done everything you can to understand how he views his own story
2: and to understand a druggie and to sort of like even ask the questions of a druggie that a druggie would ask, like on the next level. Not like these boring things about the rise and fall of a druggie, but it's like, all right, well, let's get down to why you're doing it, you know, and the subtle parts and even the fun parts. And And the thing is, is this is why people read. My sense
1: uh, with the Marinovich story for sure was that... Uh you saw it more clearly than he did
2: totally and he didn't like to talk about himself and he was petulant and he was like a drug addict athlete like two of the worst narcissistic things you can kind right, of But and
1: but he also had lived a life which made it very hard to relate to other people i mean Well he, it's
2: that rarefied thing it's like can you it's like can you go to a place without having rules of behavior you know it's really like what do you do like Um, I recently wrote about a Muslim guy um, in my new collection, an Esquire piece about a Muslim guy who was shot by a white supremacist. He wasn't even Arab. (laughs) Um, He's from Bangladesh. Um, But he was shot as payback for 9-11. Shot him in the fucking face. Right. And um, I went to mosque with this guy. And I'm Jewish. And... I mean, it was a big mosque full of people and they, you know, when you, they worship and I've been to, I've actually been to the Dome of the Rock mosque too, so I've done this before, but, you know, they stand up, sit down, you know, and like, I was like totally, like I couldn't be standing up when everybody was standing up and I had to like kind of figure out something to do with myself and like be comfortable there. And like they had sat me down with all these kids who can either love you or hate you and you know, it's like a whole thing just to be able to cope. And um, which is really funny for me because I don't even like to leave the house on the one hand. And, but yet on the other hand, it's a great game, I guess. It's like a conquest in a way. I mean, to be honest, I'm like not, it's not because oh, I'm such a great human being and I'm letting people. I mean, it's a, it's a challenge. I have to do this job, which is really scary. Go like hang out with different people. And so it's a challenge. And you just, so you, you view it as, I'm not getting anywhere without any help. I can't be a smart ass. And I rely on the kindness of strangers. I don't know. I mean, luckily, I get the luxury of time. So there could be whole days when I don't get any tape, mm-hmm. which could drive you crazy sometimes. You know, and I'm driving myself crazy, too, because I believe me, every story, I'm starting totally blank, and I hate it. Right. I mean, I, I like, it takes me a long time to start a story. I'm always telling my head, <laughs> I'm setting it up, I'm setting it up, I'm setting it up. But I'm just like, it takes me a minute to set it up. I just, you know, usually, I mean, but I just can't get into it because I've just got to start and be totally out of it and be a fool. And like, I mean, sometimes you just, I, you know, you don't know anything. You know, how do you know, how do you know that when in Thailand, you can't touch somebody's head, for instance, or right. All this stuff that you just have to be going back into another world where you're going to make mistakes. Yeah. So and or and maybe not write have nothing to write at the end. And believe me, I feel that way. Even though I tell myself I always have something to write, you know these things that every writer feels. I feel them too. And I, you know, I'll tell you that I'll set my for myself Monday as my starting day of writing, and I will never start Monday. I will start Tuesday for sure, but all Monday I will sit around and tell myself how loathsome I am and blah, 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 and I'll also be telling yeah, you know, you're going to start Monday, but I still have to go through the whole, you know, Woody Allen anxiety thing. If there's
1: one universal theme that's emerged on these podcasts, it's uh, everyone procrastinates. Right. Everyone procrastinates. And I
2: think the thing is, the message to me is, I mean, I think just like my subjects, I have sought to understand my own foibles and to learn how to work around and to chide myself when necessary, and to roll with it when necessary, and to ultimately build it in, and but also like, I think my our, some of our fellows in magazine writing, I think we make it more than it is, you know. It's just like, it's four to seven thousand words. Relax and have a good time. Well, I, you know, I, it's like
1: I, I mean, I'm glad to sort of hear you say that because one of the things that emerged when I was reading all these stories the last couple of days is like. You, again, like you're writing about some pretty bleak stuff, but it it's pretty fun. Like it seems like you're having a good time. The stories are are pretty entertaining to read, even these like brutal stories. I mean, I want to make sure that we talk about this, so I'm just going to ask you now. But the like, if you look at the most clicked stories in the history of, uh, uh, you know, the two and a half years we've been doing this website, it's like anything else, man: it's sex and murder. And you have written like two of the great sex and murder stories um a they feel kind of like movies they're entertaining in the way that i mean one of them the story about john holmes is sort of what two movies were based on right um but they're also not the sort of simple narrative they're not they're not the simple answer and you get at uh some complexities around these people and my my sense looking through archives what i've been able to find is that people weren't writing about porn in the 90s if they were they certainly weren't writing about it that way and if you look through the stats on long form now like those are the stories that people love those stories get clicked all the time there's tons of people writing about porn at this point i mean talk a little bit about a what it was like to just be writing about that stuff at that time but b to get into the lives of these folks who are maybe the easiest people to sort of like stereotype and brush off
2: well that's the first and most important thing is and again, it's like talking about the suspension of disbelief. But my father was a gynecologist. Okay, he taught sex ed at our religious school. Um, I've always been very natural about sex. We could say whatever we wanted at the dinner table as long as it was proper terms. And I think one important thing, and this is, there was a, a long time ago, I almost wrote a movie with the photographer Bruce Weber. And it was funny, I was hit Rolling Stone and he read that story and he just called. And I, it was like late at night, it was like 8 o'clock. I was with my editor, and we happen to get the call, and it's this guy. And he said, I just love how it's not dirty. And it's a story about a guy with a 14-inch penis, and it's not dirty. And that's the J-stroke. You know, it's like, don't be dirty. And, and, and see, that's just people being afraid to sort of really look at it. The other thing is it didn't get any nominations. You know, that story's like, it didn't exist, really. That story for the longest time, although I remember being at the beach in Rehoboth, Delaware, and it had Paul McCartney on the cover, and everybody was reading that story. (laughs) Rolling Stone up and down the beach. Uh, It was a black and white cover of Paul McCartney.
1: The story, if anyone's wondering, is uh, is called The Devil and John Holmes. It's about the the first huge. Yeah, but I mean, for
2: me, um, the bottom line of that is that was the second crime story I ever attempted. The first one was this Midlothian, Texas drug story. And that this was the second. And it was really three stories. It was a story about porn. Um, and this was uh, the late 80s. Yeah. So, you know, VCRs had only come in, like, mid-80s, 84, 85. People had, like, porn at home, even movies at home. You know, so that was one thing, you know, porn. Then B was this murder. And C was AIDS. John Holmes was the first porn star with AIDS. Right. And... And early 80, late 80s, AIDS was not really even talked about a whole lot yet. Where do you think,
1: I mean, if you go to your website, you've got all these tips up for young reporters. And you teach, you clearly have thought a lot about the craft and about uh, how this is done and how this can be explained to people who are trying to do it. Um, how are you feeling about the future of this stuff?
2: I feel great. Um, because of all the stuff going on, on the web, and you know, like for years, I've had this kind of ministry where people contact me, so I know all these young guys as sooner you know Heckard and you know all these people um that we have in the book they've all I've known them and I know their work and and even and other people that we don't even know about, you know who I've been teaching and are constantly calling me, and um it's there, and it's happening it's just it's kind of futuristic now. It's kind of cool because back in the old days, Popular Mechanics told us we'd have flying cars and they also told us we'd have like on demand entertainment. And we could have any movie we want and any reading we want. And you know, it used to be you had to go to the library and get a book or you couldn't order from Amazon or you couldn't get, you know, no, you had to go to the movie theater. Right. You know, or you had to rent a projector to get porn, <laughs> you know, and pay a lot of money for if your fraternity house wanted a porn film. Um, So I'm telling Harrington, you know, there's all this, it's happening now. And so I think we have the ability to hit that niche market where, yeah, nobody wants to read this. I mean, my sales figures of my books are atrocious, you know, but I think it's like the same people who are listening. It's like people who write and people who love writing and journalism and reading in this area. And it's, it's like, I mean, how many people are there? It's not that many, but we can reach them this way,
1: right? Well, they're they're right. They're certainly getting reached. I mean, that's a question that we're thinking about all the time. It's you know, how many people are there out there
2: who? I mean,
1: how many people are there out there who love this stuff? And then how many people are there out there who are just looking for entertainment and this is the way that they scratch that itch? Yeah. You know? You know? So hmm. I mean,
2: the thing and the thing is, I think the more there is, the more demand we create too, and also, I think the. Um, the self-determination aspect, A, and B, the multimedia aspect are the things that really, really turn me on a lot. You know, I, you know, as I, I've said tonight, nobody wanted my anthropology. I remember being at the Post and going to Bob Woodward, and with an amazing story idea, I found this group of white people who were all American Sikhs, they called themselves. They wore turbans, they worshipped, they had a, shore, a store in Georgetown. They sell these weird shoes, Shakti shoes, and um, they all live communally in this big mansion. And I go to Woodward, and I'm like, it's great story I want to write about these people. He's like, well, how many of them are there? I, and I'm like, oh, I don't know, 18 or 20. And I remember him writing that number down and circling it. And it's like, well, that's not a trend. You know, so it wasn't a good story. And, you know, I was going to make it a good story, just like the, the, the football story and all these other things. And, um, but it's not an easy sell. Yeah. Because it's not on its intrinsically interesting. There's always various stories that nobody wants. The Marinovich story. Um, so that's what's good about this and now.
1: Those, I mean, those are the ones that kind of endure. Those are the ones that seem to resonate with people.
2: Yeah. And um, and that's why, you know, the Sager group, like, has self-determination as an important thing, because I'm just tired of fighting.
1: So that's part of the idea of the, of the Sager group. is like, you're just going to you're going to do those ideas. I'm
2: going to like trust people who believe and that I believe in. And I'm also going to like do some multimedia crazy stuff, you know, that people are doing like the Atavist and, you know, this multimedia and words and music. Because, you know, a former photographer, always love working with photographers. Pictures sell your story. That's another editor told me that at the Post. Like doing these visual stories, you get better play. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, There's a pie of life, and there's a slice for entertainment, and that includes music, movies, reading, news. It's all the shit. So it's like, to me, like, from the first word, I'm fighting for my reader, and I'm gonna hand hand over hand them like a rope all the way through, and that's all I care about. Like, there's you know they used to tell you there's like eight stories on the front page. You want them to jump with you you want them to go inside on the story you want to, and you know what it's like i'm not going to do all that work and then not have them read it <laughs> right you know and that's like part of the problem with and books and you're not going
1: to make your job harder by picking something boring if
2: i can avoid it you know again most of my i don't get to pick most of the time
1: you didn't get to pick but maybe now you can do some more of the stuff you want to do
2: um sometimes but you know what i find that it's better to be assigned because i don't really care Um, I don't really have this intrinsic interest in things, or I wish I could write about that. We spoke earlier about the Kobe story. I love the, like one of my only hobbies through the years has been basketball. Ever since I moved out to San Diego, I followed the Lakers and Kobe was young and I've always, for better or worse, I've always followed them. And one thing I noticed about Kobe, um, which is now the thing that everybody says about Kobe, was his work ethic. And um, I have a Kobe-like feeling like that transcribing, I always say it's sort of Catholic. You're on your knees; it hurts. My, I've blown out my wrists. I stay longer. I'm so insecure about <laughs> fucking up that I just go early, stay late, stay longer, do everything I can. And um, and two things about Kobe. First of all, I went there when everyone hated him, and I wrote this work ethic story. So I was proud of that because I think I changed that sense. A, B. I went two years before the Olympics, and I went to this practice in a high school gym with no other press there, and it was just just all the players were playing in a high school gym, and it was like the World Games was coming up. It was like nothing, and I was so moved. I wrote this 1,500-word lead about the future of the USA basketball team and blah, 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 and then I, I, I think it started with Kobe's shot, and then it digressed 1,500 words, <laughs> and then it picked up with Kobe's shot again, and then... My editor, Peter, who generally, he doesn't do a lot of editing. He fixes a little here and there. But basically, by the time I write, I know what's going on. Um, but he's like, Mike, you know, and like, I know. And we just lopped off the first. <laughs> so the point of that story is it was something I really cared about and something I like knew about. And I had like a horse in the race. And so it was harder to get Where I had to be...
1: Right, to get to that blank slate.
2: Yeah. So in a way, I would rather not tell you what I want to write about. I mean, the only thing I would really say is like, somebody like Michael Jackson with full access. You know, somebody just so a Martian. (laughs) That's what I want to write about. I just want to be with Martians (laughs) and be an anthropologist.
1: I was looking around, and I found this thing on the Esquire website. There's, there's this email you'd sent to your editors after interviewing Gore Vidal, and it was this like little thing that was in your notebook that uh, wasn't ever going to make the stories this great exchange. People should look it up. I'll put it in the show notes. But the, the, um, it made me think, give me one great story that never made it into a story.
2: Well, you know that um, the worst question to ever ask someone is, tell me an anecdote. <laughs> it always makes every subject's mind go blank. <laughs>
1: All right, well, how would you ask yourself that question? I
2: don't know. My mind just went blank. (laughs) Um, But I have to tell you a story that comes to mind. It's so blue, though. The first story that came to my mind was about John Holmes. Do it, man. Um, Maybe there are other writers among us. will. you know, there's a great personal toll that comes from this sort of thing. And um, John Holmes isn't the only porn story I've done. There's also one I did about Savannah, uh, who was a porn actress who killed herself. And it's really funny, my wife... My ex-wife was like nine months pregnant and I was like carrying all these videos up to my office of Savannah, (laughs) you know, and any of us men who out there who've had, you know, less than amazing sex life during pregnancies um, would understand how I probably felt at the time, no wife, no life, you know, all I have is my Savannah porn tapes. But um, back in time, I was doing the same thing with the John Holmes thing and it was really a new thing, all these tapes and I remember I had to rent... A VCR in my hotel room. I was staying in this shitty hotel in Westwood, which is now this big condo. It's not even there anymore. Um, But I'd been on this marathon of watching John Holmes movies, and I just turn it off and go to take a piss. And I'm standing over the bowl, and I look down, and I'm like, I always had thought I was kind of like, for a short guy, I was like pretty well endowed. Like I never (laughs) like complained, or you know, there were no complaints, but. I looked down, and it was like, after watching John Holmes, who had this like, <laughs> and in the story, it's actually reported the wife, the first wife came home one day, and John was measuring his erection with a tape measure. So it's actually reported in the story the exact dimensions of the penis. And not only was it so huge, but it was just like in perfect proportion. You know, it almost like it looked on film as if it was a blow up. So here I am doing this long story about John Holmes weeks and weeks and weeks studying and watching his tapes. And I go to pee and like I just look down at my penis like disappeared. <laughs> and uh, it's like all of a sudden I've had the smallest penis in the world, you know, after. So I don't know, that's uh, that in my PTSD from being with all these fucked up people. There's like an un, I cry a lot uh, watching TV. Um, so that was, that's the other side of this. Uh, there's a there's a great toll so warning
1: to young journalists, if you're going to write about someone with a giant dick, be prepared. That's to...
2: right. Be prepared to pay the price.
1: <laughs> Mike, man, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time.
2: I'm glad I could uh, keep my reputation by ending on that anecdote. It's a perfect way to end it, man.
1: <laughs> perfect way. Thank you very much. Thanks, man. Thanks very much to Mike Sager for taking the time on his visit from San Diego. Thanks to my co hosts Aaron and Evan. Thanks to Lauren Kirchner for editing this episode as always. And thanks to Tiny Letter for sponsoring it. We'll be back next week.